It's good to see everyone this morning. And I, I, I said something, was that last week or the last time I was here maybe? Um, it was right at the end and I, I said, essentially, I, I don't believe in going to heaven when you die. And um, that caused quite a stir in some people's minds. They wanted to prove to me I would go to heaven when I die. But um, I, I realized that I had sort of spoken it roughly, not kindly or compassionately. I just threw it out there. It wasn't in my notes, didn't plan on saying it, but it came out. And... Um, so what I'm going to say today is not to answer that. That would be an overstatement. But I really want to speak to it because in a much gentler tone, with much greater compassion, I don't believe it's heaven when you die. Uh, that was made up probably, well, a hundred years ago, maybe a bit more, but it was the, the, when the great evangelistic era came about with you've got D.L. Moody and Charles Finney among the names uh, of those people and uh, th these cliches came up that number one all of salvation was after you died a and the whole thing hung on do you go to the right or to the left and is it damnation or is it heaven and that right there completely destroyed the gospel. There's nothing left. You've taken out of it the heart of the gospel. It's the, well, that's not there. Um, nothing in the New Testament is about when you die. The whole thing is now you're living, and that's the gospel. And um, and then came the the magic words of the sinner's prayer that you've got to have. You've got to say those words. And I've, some of my dear friends, you know, would would stay by a deathbed as persons are breathing their last, and they make sure you say the words exactly these words after me, because we got to get that done. If you don't say it, God will say you said it wrong. Out. And um, so that's when I get very upset because that's the finale. That's putting the lid on the casket. That there's nothing more left of the gospel. It's. Um, the gospel, I say, is all about now. And because of what is now, it shall be. But don't begin with shall be. And this is the New American Standard that I use. But still, in the one, the bigger one, the study Bible, the publisher has put in headings. And whenever it's beginning to talk about the glory of living Christ now, they put in the heading, future glory. It's not future. And if you're going to publish a Bible, if anyone's listening that does, please publish the Bible and get your own opinions out of it. Um, let the Bible speak for itself. Okay, they see I was getting off again. So that's it. I'm speaking to it. I'm not exactly answering it. It's in John chapter 1, and the, these are, uh, we would call them dense words. That is, uh, there's so much in these verses, it would take weeks to really say what's here. But I'm just going to at least do a running try at it and see what is there. And so verse 35, John chapter one thirty-five. The next day, John, as John the Baptist, was standing, and two of his disciples were with him, and he looked upon Jesus as he was walking by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and so they left John the Baptist and followed Jesus. And as they were following, Jesus turned and beheld or looked at them following and said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. And they came therefore and saw where he was staying 
They stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And I believe John was using Roman time, which meant ten in the morning. Um, if he was using Jewish time, that would be four in the afternoon. But I, that's neither here nor there. Um, but I say ten because they, they spent the day with him. Well, from four till six, when, when the Jewish day began at six in the afternoon, um, that's hardly the day. Uh, they really spent the day, which means about ten in the morning. So here it is. Ten in the morning, John the Baptist has finished speaking for the present, finished baptizing for the present. He's now standing. The crowds are milling. If you could imagine, I don't know if you even think about John the Baptist very much, but John the Baptist addressed really the known world. They came from everywhere to hear John the Baptist. He was a weird fellow, looked wacko, and um, had come, crawled out of the wilderness, and all he said of himself, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But they came, and um, this would be more like a, a Woodstock you know, because once you got down there, if you've ever been to Israel, I'm sure you've been down there where John preached. And we get there by bus, don't we? Well, when there were no buses, you walked. And there's a lot of desert around there. It's a remote place. And here, the River Jordan, he baptized. And so the people came. But in getting there, it's too much to go back home. And so they would be sleeping on the hillsides. They would be crowds upon crowds. And, and so as Jesus is walking through the crowd, he has been baptized. And he went into the wilderness for six weeks. And now he's come back. And he's walking through the crowds. And John recognizes him. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, and I'm really just throwing this out it's not vital to the story, but in another sense it is. Um, how old do you think these disciples were? I mean, John, the two that are mentioned here is John, who becomes the Apostle John. With him is Andrew, who was Peter's brother. And they, he, he goes and he finds Philip and Nathaniel. How old do you think they were? Now, I know you're immediately going to the movies, and, and you're, you're thinking of the guys you saw in the movies, and they all look, well, they look pretty old, and um, some of them look really ancient. I mean, if you look at some of the movie actors that, that portray like Nathaniel, um, they always give him a bald head for some reason. Let, let me tell you this, based on the culture, this isn't a, something hidden. It's as plain on your face if you know the culture of that day. John, he's one of these guys that ran off to Jesus. John was about 13 or 14 years old. Andrew would be around 16, 17. The only one who would be over 18 would be Peter, because he was married. And in that culture, you never got married until you were 18. And, of course, they waited and waited, and as soon as they were 18, they got married. And they married a 13-, 14-year-old girl. And so that was Peter. He was the pretty much the old. Maybe Matthew would be in his early 20s as a tax collector. He had to have some punch to him. But all of them were teenagers, and John, as I say, was 13 or 14. That is shocking until you read like the epistle of Peter and the epistles of John. If they were older men when Jesus called them, how old were they when they're writing letters at the end of the New Testament? They, they I say it again, but that was the culture. And the culture was when a Anyone that had a bent toward the the scripture, um, especially the first five books of the Bible, the Torah uh, and the uh, rest, they, they would memorize from one years old until 12. 
They, they were memorizing the scripture. When you were 12 years old in that culture, you would know massive portions of the Old Testament by heart, enough to be able to sit and talk and quote from here and quote from there, and you would say yes, but and quote from there. Bunch of teenagers. And, and um, if one was really bent that way, they really felt they had some sort of call to, to be a rabbi, then they would go to the rabbis that they they thought were the great guys and they would present themselves, I want to become your disciple. And the rabbi would then question them and it would be a real interrogation based on the scripture of the Old Testament, whether we can turn you into it. That's what happened to Jesus in the temple when at 12 years old he was under the interrogation of the rabbis, and only in his case, his answers confused the rabbis. They'd never thought of it. Um, but, you know, when we think Jesus talking to rabbis at 12 years old, that's not something we're used to, that idea. Well, it wasn't. It was very common in these days. Only in this case, we're going to see Jesus choosing disciples. That never happened. That you as the, the kid of 13 or 14, you were the one that chose your rabbi. But in Jesus' case, in fact, he said it at the end, uh, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Um, And also, if you go through, in the light of what I just said, um, Jesus said, you know, uh, more than once, he addressed the disciples as his little children. Yeah. If he was 30 years old and they were in the early teens, they would be like little children. And um, it, when, when he called to them from the boat, when remember when he rose from the dead, he was on the shore and he called out to them. And, and the word he uses, uh, you, you could almost say, we would in English anyway, lads. Um, it, it meant he was talking to teenagers who were on the boat. Uh, of course, that doesn't fit in today's world um, at all. Um, but but here you have it. If now, if you can imagine it, um, 13, 14-year-old, Andrew about 15, maybe 16. Uh, I can't give you exact. I'm just saying that's the period we're talking about. And, and they've already, see, they have gone to John. And he says they were John's disciples. So this 13, 14, 15-year-olds have gone to John the Baptist and applied to him to become his disciples. And they are disciples of John. Now John sees Jesus and said, now that's the one I've been talking about the whole time. Look, he's God's lamb. And at that point, they leave, essentially they leave John the Baptist and they follow after Jesus. Now, you get the picture here. And Jesus turns to them, and would you believe it? He said, what do you want? Um, how many times are we going to find that? Uh, they, the translation uh, in our New American Standard says, what do you seek? And that's a, a reason, uh, because seek is one step further than want. Uh, you could say... Uh, Jesus said, what do you really want? You know, you're, you've now, and it's obvious, you, you, I can hear the patter of your feet behind me, and you're coming after me. Um, what do you really want? Seek has got in it a much stronger desire than want. Seek means something is hidden, and, and I, I don't know where it is, but I know I've got to have it. So I'm seeking after It has got that um, striving in it to find. I'll turn over every stone. uh, I'll go through every cupboard that I'm seeking. In fact, the word is used in Luke 15, where the woman who lost the coin talks about her seeking the kind. Jesus said, I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. It's got any passion. It's got in it that I'm not going to quit till I find it, seeking. Uh, Mary and Joseph, the, the story we just referred to, when Jesus was left in the temple, and they go back, and it, it says, your, your father and I have been seeking you 
Now it is, they were going crazy. We, you know, we've lost God <laughs> and you've got to find this kid. And, and, and they're going all over Jerusalem. Have you seen? Have you seen? Have you seen? And that's seeking. And, and there's a desperation about it. There's, there's a fear that I might not find it. The, the, all those ideas. It's also used very negatively, but you can understand the word. Herod was seeking to kill the baby Jesus. And if you know anything about Herod, he was a, literally a madman. And when he went seeking, anyone in the way would lose their life. He, he was, he was a, uh, Judas is described as seeking a place that he could betray Jesus. Okay, you got it. So when God incarnate, God becomes man and stands in front of us, and says, what do you really want? You better know, he's addressing my heart. He's addressing my deepest self. What is it that you crave? What is it that you're going to leave no stone unturned? I'm going to pursue this until I have it. Jesus, that's what he was saying to And I can't, I'm not going to stay there, but the the idea of, of saying today to a couple of teens, teens, 13, 14, what do you really want? Assuming Jesus is the one talking to them. And if they said, we want your autograph, that that would be, you know, what I'd expect. Um, this is going to be a big day because I can go home and tell everybody we met the star of the show down in, you know, it's... I'm still trying to communicate that it was a 13-year-old that Jesus was talking to, 14 maybe. Um, Of course, we've already talked about that, that when Mary had the visitation from the angel that says you're going to conceive and bear a child, she was 13 or 14. Um, In this culture, by the time you reach 30, it's pretty well done. You found your place in life. You you know where you're going, and that they didn't have men children. You know they didn't play with Tonka toys in the garage. That, do you realize that our culture dumbs people down until they're idiots? And, and here you're facing the people who wrote the New Testament. The people who fill the pages of the early church were essentially teenagers in in their early 20s. Interesting. I mean, even Jesus was 30 when the whole thing was done, you know. And so what are they going to say? What what do you really want? Well, they said something very big. I don't know if they understood what they were saying at the time, actually. Um, They said, where are you staying It sounds fair enough. As I said, it was like Woodstock. They're they're sleeping on the hills and anywhere they can find a place to put their sleeping bag. And where are you staying? It would be, we want to come and talk to you. But, and that would be fair enough. But that word staying is translated all the way through the Gospel of John as abide. It's it's not staying is one thing. Abiding is a much bigger word than just staying. Uh, abiding means that I continue to be present in a binding relationship. It means I'm in this for the long haul. It means a covenant relationship where I'm entwined, I'm entangled with another person or persons, and I'm not going away. It's got in it this remain idea. And so sometimes it's translated in, in the New Testament as remain, as in he remained alive. The fact you're still here from last night, you, you remained alive, meaning you are entangled with life and, and you're not going away. You remain alive. You continue to live it's used to remain in a covenant bond with someone. That's interesting. 
Because they're sorry, I don't know if they knew they were saying that. Um, where do you abide? It would make sense. They meant, where, where, where's your sleeping bag? Where, 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 where's the fire you made last night? Um, but I think under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they said abide. Jesus said, come and you will see. Okay, see. The word see in the Greek language, there's more than one word for see. And this one, and now it really gets interesting. This word for see means someone appears to you and you then see them. It was used every time that Jesus appeared after his resurrection. So they saw, but it was a saw of surprise. In fact, the word almost contains the idea of, wow, I never expected that. It's a surprising seeing. It's got in it the idea of eyes wide open, gawking. Is that a word you don't understand? You know, I just, uh, my mouth is open, my eyes bugging out. I, I, I don't know where to put this. I have seen something that, eyes normally don't see you're you're seeing something that is beyond natural material physical there's that it's the seeing of inner eyes because you're seeing something at best unusual it's it's usually supernatural and so it's the eyes of the heart that are being opened so they said We want to know where you abide, even if they didn't fully know what they were saying. We want to know where you are entangled. We want you, I don't know, where you remain 24-7, 60 minutes in an hour, seconds in a minute. Uh, We want to know where you abide. And Jesus says, come and you're going to see. You are going to have your eyes opened to see where I abide, which is beyond your comprehension right now. So he took them, and he took them, obviously, to the place where he slept last night, out on the hillside, his little bit of green grass, where there was still the ashes from the fire that he had made last night. And they stayed with him all day. In fact, they're going to stay with him all, all his life. See, what Jesus was saying, I'm not going to take you to the place where I slept last night. That that may be where we'll sit down today and talk. But I'm going to take you where I abide, where I really live. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to show you where I dwell in seamless union. That's, that's what he's saying. Um Well, that being the case, he couldn't take them to an address because that, where I dwell in my innermost being in seamless union, cannot have an address. It can be at an address, but it isn't the address because Jesus was going to show show them that his dwelling, that is his abiding, was a dimension of life, not merely a place. So the whole idea that began back in very early, the fourth century, that this is the house of God as if he lives here, that, and I I (laughs) said, boy, more trouble. Uh, that's paganism. And that began with the idea of a God that lives in a house. Um, and it, it twisted the whole meaning of who we are, who Jesus is. It's just plain religious whatever. Um, you can't put an address. There is no... God doesn't live in a house. He's a, and, and therefore, 
we're, we're talking, Jesus said, I'm going to show you where I abide with the Father in the Holy Spirit. That's where he lived. Are you with me? Yeah. You know. yeah. He lived. Well, it, it says in John chapter 118, which is only 20 verses earlier than the one we're looking at. He's already told us that he, God the Son, dwelled or abided in the bosom of the Father, which means in the most intimate relationship to the Father. The Father was in him, and he was in the Father. And when you've met Jesus, you've met the Father. And and John one eighteen says that's he dwelled inside of God. Then John starts, he drops that. He, he's told us who Jesus is. Now he says, this is how it started with me. And he tells us, and so Jesus remained. He remained. He, he, this was his abode in, in the holy presence of the Trinity. It, that word, if you can take another word, um, holiness. Holiness, until I really began to see what the whole thing was about, what was a very, what can I say, not a, so much a bad word, it's a frightening word, holy, because I had been taught that holy meant that God is so removed, he's so separate, he is too holy to look at sin, and, and therefore I repel him, he's repulsed by me, because he is so holy, and therefore in many churches, when they say the word holy, they bend their head and they'll, they'll it's, it's holy, holy. I'm no good. I'm worthless. God is holy. And then I found out that that was a devilish thing that came into the church when it was at its worst. And it was based on the Roman court system. It's got nothing to do with God. If you could look at what the scripture says, holy means the binding love of the Father to the Son and to the Spirit, and the Spirit to the Father, Son, and the Son to the Father, Spirit. And it is a binding love that is so intense that we say one. It is three, but love has so bound them together, they are one in love. And so holy means the mutual, that is Father, Son, Spirit, the mutual delight, the, the mutual passion of the Holy Trinity, the one for the other. It means the joy of the Holy Trinity that is beyond anything we can express in earthly language. It means the fullness of life that the Holy Trinity is. Or you could say the sheer face-to-face that they have, which is life. That is life. God, who's the origin of life, that is life. That is love. That is harmony. That is health and wholeness. Holy. Actually, whole, holy, they're the same word. And so when we say holy, it, it, we're expressing the wonder in fact, it speaks in the Old Testament of the beauty of holiness. And this is what we're talking about, the uniqueness of God, which, of course, holy does mean separated, but separated in the sense that there's nothing on earth. There is no created being like this. This is holy. But, of course, that holy is love, which cannot keep to himself, and so he comes back right into the middle of us. And so he's holy. That's why he's giving himself to us. Trinitarian life. And in that love, there can be no fear. Fear cannot exist in love. There's no lies Lies cannot exist in the light, the radiance of who God is. There's no despair, only incredible, limitless hope. That's holy. That's where Jesus, the Son of God, lived. Lived in that. Because as the Son of God, God the Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
That's where he lived. That's the Holy Trinity. When he came and took to himself our humanity, he lives with us, but at the selfsame moment, he dwells in the bosom of the Father. Do you understand that? You can't break the Trinity. You can't take Jesus out of the Trinity and say he's on a 30-year mission. You know, it's. Um, I heard someone say they went to heaven and um, they they were asking where the Holy Spirit was. They, and he was told that the Holy Spirit's on a mission. He won't be back for a number of years. Uh, Obviously, that person has no clue what the Trinity means. There is no, you can never divide that. It's one God. And what the Father is, the Son is. And what the Son and Father is, the Spirit is. And each is glorifying the other. And each is an expression of that union that they are. Jesus lived there. So when he took our flesh and became a genuine human being, which means he lives where we live, but at the same moment, he never stopped living in the bosom of the Father. See, the the opening verses of John have told us this. He's the beloved son. He's the creator of all that is. He's the only begotten God who knows the Father because he's in the Father in the most intimate presence. That's where he lives. Where do you abide? I'll show you. <laughs> and your jaw will drop off, you know. And so, as I say again, you, there's no address to that. It's not, it's not a space or a place. It is a state of being. It's a dimension of life. It's a love relationship. Mm -hmm. And knowing another in relationship is a heart matter, not an address. Now, it can come to include a place, um, establish that, that this love relationship that can never be broken. Well, the persons in that relationship can go and live in a place. But if all you've got is a place, you don't have anything. You've just got an empty building. See, um, years, decades ago, when I first came to the States, um, I had enough money to buy a Dodge van. And into that Dodge van, um, I had three children and their mother, who... We we were, it was something, a lot of preachers in those days, I had to preach every night, because I would, if I preach for them, they give me an offering, and they give me a hotel room, and I'm gone the next morning. And I toured the whole of California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, right up into Canada, preaching every night. And part of that was not spiritual, it was, I've got to live. And um, we got food every night. They gave me enough money for gas, and I got a bed to sleep in. And somewhere I was, I don't know where we were, it doesn't matter. Um, Somebody said to my eldest daughter, and she was around six or seven, they they said, so where do you live? You know, I'm over here in this, I'm cringing. They're going to say in the back of a truck, you know, it's, well, we did, but. And that little six-year-old thought for a minute. And then she said, well, we have a home, but we don't have a house to put it in. (laughs) She hit it. That's what this is. I've got a home, but no house to put it in. We have a relationship. We have an abiding. We have a face-to-face. And we don't necessarily have a place to put it in because you don't talk that you see and so here is God incarnate God who has taken to himself our humanity walking through the crowds which has become this event that I am likening to a rock concert in many ways they're they're jostling they're pushing and, and he's had to sleep on the hillside he is God incarnate 
but his dwelling is not in the jostling crowds. He has chosen to be here. He is here, but his dwelling, his abiding, is in God the Father, in the Holy Spirit. Okay, I think you got it. Because you see, the holy circle of love, holiness, the holy circle of love, we were created to abide in that circle. That It says it in the scripture. We, we were created to, as he, God came to dwell in us to show us what we were created to be. He didn't come to float 12 feet off the ground and say, I'm better than you. He came to say, this is what you were made to be. Dwelling in God while you're living wherever you live. Dwelling inside of God while you're doing whatever you're doing. This is your anchor place. This is where you never leave. This is your home and sometimes you have an address to put it in, but it doesn't matter because you you are in him. The whole gospel, that's the gospel. It begins before time and space. The gospel began in the heart and mind of God. Creation was in order to have a stage on which this can take place. And so the decision, and the Bible calls it a purpose of the Holy Trinity, it calls it the counsel of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Call it what you will, it was the decision of God that there should be creatures. Creatures means created ones. God is uncreate. He never began. No one made him. Now he who never began will make that which does begin and begins by his word. And he called that man, which doesn't mean male. Man means mankind. And that was all decided before there was a leaf or a mosquito. It was decided that we should be the peak of creation and that we should be included into the circle of holiness and that we should know what God is like. Not from a distance, not from a book, not from a lecture, but know him. This was the Father's passionate desire. And so the Father created, but he created through the Son. So you'll read that Jesus is the creator of all things that are, all things that ever have been. Jesus is the creator. He upholds it with the word of his power. He's the glue that holds it together. So the Father creates. As I say, you can't split the Trinity. So the Father creates, but he creates through the Son in the Spirit. And so the Spirit moved upon the stuff that the Son made for us. Because he told the Son, and Jesus referred to this, he told the Son, I'm giving to you mankind. That doesn't mean to say the Father said, I don't want them. Father so loved the world But he gave us to the Son that his love might be worked out in them and for them and toward them in the Holy Spirit. And that was so real. The gift of you to the Father, the Father's gift of you to the Son was so real that elsewhere, well, not elsewhere, pretty well all through the Bible, it's likened to a bride being given to the groom. And in a marriage service, when you're going to be married and the celebrant says, who gives this woman? Do they still do that? I don't know. But back in the day when marriage meant something, they said, who gives this woman? Which meant she already belongs. She's not just a wild woman on the street. She belongs And whoever she belongs to gives her to the groom. And he then takes her and tells her that he will give his life for her. That's marriage as used to be. Um, 
And so it, this is the ultimate marriage that took place before time, before you were even here. The father took you and says, you belong to me and I love you with an unconditional, endless love and I now give you to the son. And that binding is likened, I say again, you are the bride of Christ. It's, it's that, that's what it is. And Ephesians 1 says, he chose us. He's talking to us, the human race. He chose us in Christ, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world. And that is an iffy translation. It could well be he chose us before the fall of the world. Meaning, don't you ever dare think that the coming of Jesus and the gospel is about the fall of Adam. Don't ever think Jesus came just to get rid of sin and save you from hell when you die. That is, never think it. It's, it says before the foundation of the world, the whole plan was you were given to Jesus before the fall of Adam, before the foundation of the world. What would he give us to him for? So that we would be holy, blameless before him. In love, he predestined or laid out the plan. Don't get hung up on the word predestined. It was predestined. We had a meeting here this morning. That was the plan. And we're now fulfilling it. Predestined is a big, clumsy word. Um, but the plan was, the plan was always that you should be adopted like sons into a family through Jesus Christ to himself. That's the gospel. It's the gospel. That you, a creature, a begun person, and then you'll be joined into Jesus who would love you and be bound to you as bride and groom, and he would bring you into the family of the Holy Trinity. Do, do you follow me? It's not that God just says, you know, be it so. No, it doesn't work like that. That would be no relationship. That would be a bunch of robots. God must actually, actually become one of us. Without ever leaving the family, he became one of us and then joined to us, took us back into the family. That's the gospel. It's the meaning of creation. It's the heart of it all. But of course, uh, once you're talking these terms, the creature, this begun person that God made, is a freedom. Once you mention the word love or relationship, you've got to have freedom. Scary. Freedom is terrifying. Because I might choose the wrong thing. Yep. But... If, if you don't choose, you're not alive. Right. So, mm -hmm. yeah, and of course, they chose to listen to the liar. And the lie was, you can be God without God. But of course, we leave out holiness. We leave out love. There's no relationship. And from that time on, anyone who believes the lie thinks of God as power. He's almighty God, which he's not. He's almighty love, who is God. But that was the lie. God is power, and if you want power, you can have it. Just be independent of God. That was the entrance into the beautiful creation. It was the entrance of the great sadness. Great sadness. The great depression came like a terrible, profound blanket of darkness. Mankind forgot who he was. Didn't know who God was. A darkness that would penetrate every part of man's existence and corrupt it. The way I, I've said it in months past is a dementia in that mankind forgot who his parent was, forgot the one who created him, forgot who he was, forgot who his wife was. 
I'm alone in a darkness. The lie blinds the mind, blinds us to the limitless joy of holiness, and instead invents this monster of legal justice. God isn't love. He's the judge. He's the one who's going to punish everything that's wrong. And as I said, the word holy was baptized into Roman jurisprudence. I don't know the century it happened, but it was 5th, 6th century, somewhere in there. And holy no longer meant what it was understood to be um, if you look at the whole picture of the gospel. Rather, holy began to mean something like steel, cold, judgment and justice and you're you're now right and if you're right i don't even look at the wrong the pharisee becomes the definition of holiness a cruel repulsive steel-tracked moral standards that's what it became And I'm not going to go anywhere with this. I'm just going to say it. But that's Antichrist. Don't, don't, Don't go looking in political figures for Antichrist. 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 Antichrist is one that would take the place of Christ. That's what the word anti means. Take the place of. Antichrist is one that comes with a gospel that isn't the gospel with a Jesus that isn't Jesus, with a God that isn't God to take the place of. But he's so subtle, he couldn't... Well, I said enough, I'm not going there. No, the Father, who is love, said to the Son, Go and bring those I love, those I have given to you, and reveal to them our endless love. Reveal into their very being. Get into their darkness and show our love for them. And then bring them home to me and we will rejoice and we'll all abide together. That's the incarnation. Incarnation is God love that is seeking and saving the lost. And as we've said a thousand times before, lost because they already belong. You can't lose something that doesn't belong to you. The lost, yeah, they belong. They belong to Jesus because he made them, created them. But he belongs to him because Father gave us to him. Jesus is, okay, you put it like this. The Father gave us to the Son to be the bride. And then the bride went nuts. She lost her mind. Demented, she fled from the church, ran off down into the ghetto, and the son said, that's mine, and I'm coming to find it. That's the gospel. And so he came, became one with us, so one with us that he tasted the darkness He saw what Adam saw and he heard what Adam heard and he felt it and his senses responded to it. But he said, no, because I dwell in the Father and I know the truth. And what you are, what I'm now feeling is the lie. What I'm now seeing is the lie. So I choose to be who I am. And so he, he became us. But he never submitted to the darkness that enfolded him as he became us. So in the darkness of our sin and brokenness, he lived in the fellowship of the Father and the Holy Spirit, seeing the Father. But he saw him as us. Can can you understand that? He who had known the Father dwelled in holiness from unbeginning. But he dwelled there as God the Son. God the Son doesn't have a body. 
God the Son doesn't have senses. God the Son is not human. So when the Son looked at the Father, the Father looked at the Son in the Spirit. Now, the Son becomes one of us. Not only one of us, but one of us as fallen Adam. And for the first time in all being one with Adam's eyes and Adam's mouth looked at the Father as the Father really is and said, I love you. Does that make sense? Refusing to believe the lies of the darkness. And it is said in in Luke chapter 257 that Jesus advanced And everybody agrees that the word there means to advance with blows. That is, he advanced as a human being with blows, saying, no, no, because he was saying yes, yes to the Father. What you see Jesus in Gethsemane, as his humanity recoils from the cup he's got to drink, he sweats blood before he says, not my will but yours be done. That didn't only happen once. That happened all through the life of Jesus as he faced every part of being human and says no to the lie. And his humanity is being converted to who he really is, if I could put it that way. So that when he emerges at the end of those silent years, the father says, you are my beloved son. He had said no to every fragment of the lie and said yes to the Father. He has become a true human being because sin is not part of being human any more than TB is part of being human. Sin has twisted, distorted, darkened, blinded, deafened, but he came and says, I am human. I am 100% human, but I listen to my Father. That's what it is. So where do you stay? Where do you abide? Come and you will see. You will see a world you've never seen before. You will see human as you've never seen human before. You will see the holiness of the Holy Trinity right here. In our humanity, you will know me. Know me. Do you remember on another occasion later on, Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Then he said, no one knows the Son except the Father. You think you know me? He said, only the Father knows the mystery of me, that I am human and I am God in that human Only the Father knows me. But then he says, nor does anyone, anyone, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. That's getting on wacko ground. You mean Moses didn't know you? No. Moses knew what Moses knew. But he didn't know the Father. Didn't know the Father. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi. They saw. I'm not denying what they saw. But, well, when Moses said, show show me who you are. Do you remember God says, you can't see who I am. You can only see my back when I've passed by. You're not ready for that. In Jesus, we see him face to face. No one, he said. All of your religion from Genesis to Malachi, you didn't know the Father. It's an attempt. It's a grasping, a groping, a shaft of light, but you don't know him. No one knows the Father except the Son. So you mean the only person in creation who knows the Father because you've lived unbeginningly face to face inside the Father. 
one with the Father, participating in the same life of the Father. You mean you're the only one in creation who knows that? Yeah. No wonder they crucified him. Because he was saying the temple doesn't know, the priests don't know, Pharisees don't know, Sadducees don't know. Oh, you're stuck? You know we don't? Yeah. Oh, just a minute. No one knows the Father except the Son, and there's somebody else. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So he said, I'm the only one who knows, but I will share my knowledge with those who I will to reveal. Well then, who, who, who do you will to reveal it? He said, I tell you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you this rest, the rest of dwelling in the beauty of holiness. I've only ever heard sermons on come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. That's not, that's at the end. What he's talking about is knowing the Father, and the fa- that's where I live. That's who I am. And I'm going to share with you where I live. I'm going to share with you my amnesty. I'm going to pour everything I know into you. Come to me. All who are weary. Are you sick and tired of religion? You're weary. You're dog tired of it. You're a candidate. Come. And I'll pour into you what I know of the Father. Are you so heavy laden with rules and laws that you can't keep? Come to me. I will pour into you my knowing of the Father. No. It's a big word in the Bible. Big word. It means to be fully acquainted with. It means to have full knowledge. It means to have intimate, personal Knowledge, you saw it yourself. It's not hearsay, it's not second hand. You know, you touched, you heard. It's the knowing. When Jesus said in the garden when he resurrected, you remember he says, Mary. That's all. He just said, Mary. She spun around, she said, Grab on her. I know that voice, I know it personally, you know. That's what it is. It's knowing. It's a union knowledge. It's knowing from the inside. It's knowing face to face. And that's why the word is used throughout the Bible to describe marriage. It is the knowing of marriage. It's to the point where in in Genesis it says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It is, it's, it's marriage at its very heart. But in the West here, we don't know much about that. We really don't. In fact, our entire education system is based on another word. Know about. To know about something is the polar opposite of knowing it. Knowing about is an exterior knowledge. This is an interior knowledge, face-to-face, personal observation. This is exterior. I will tell you about it. It's outside of you. Look, it's over there. I'll tell you about it. And I'll tell you what I was taught in my school, which was about it. I, I, I don't know any more than you. It's all about. It's exterior. It's separated. And if you memorize about it, we'll give you degrees. And you'll walk out of college and you don't know anything. You just know about. And what you know about disappears within six weeks. It's gone. Because to know about something means it's of little importance in the present moment. So... So on the the Emmaus Road, you know, the two that he conversed with, and when he went into their house and 
He broke the bread. They reported on that back to the disciples. Said, he was made known to us. That's this word. Made known in the breaking of bread. That, that is, we, we were there. We, we, we saw this. We had our hands on the table when it happened. There was no doubt. Our hearts burned within us. We know. We didn't come here to put out a possible, say, mere probability. We know. He was made known to us. The knowledge of love. And you know it by responding and receiving and experiencing. Walking in covenant together is another way. He's going to share his knowledge of the Father And that knowledge of the Father will cancel out the weariness of religion. It will cancel out all of the rules and laws. And you will be filled with God's love and God's joy and God's peace, which is ultimate rest. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. He doesn't say I'm pointing to the way. He doesn't say I've got a map here. He doesn't say I'll meet you at the corner of the road. He said, I am the road. I am the map. I am the way to heaven when you die. No, you see, but haven't you ever, I've heard it said, Jesus is the way to heaven. It's not. He is not. Is the way to the Father, the knowledge, the knowing, the life with the Father where he lives. He said, I will take you there, that where I am there you may be also. He is the way. And that is eternal life. Only by the wretchedness of the translation, the Greek word is, Aeon, and our translators translate Aeon as everlasting. Well, you see, in Hebrew, especially in Greek, there was no concept of everlasting. There's a very vague concept. You try and tell me what everlasting is. It's Well, the Hebrews for sure had nothing like that. And the Greeks really didn't either. And so aeon means from age to age. So my aeon, my aeon right now is 84 years. That's my aeon. A mosquito has so many days as its aeon. You know, aeon is a neutral word. It just means a period of time. And... This is aeon upon aeon upon aeon. They couldn't think of everlasting. That wasn't in their mind. They just said from age to age to age to age. So to say everlasting life, and everybody's, again, it's after death, of course, um, and it just goes, oh, no, you missed it. It means that life which can never die, it goes from age to age to age. It has been from age to age, and it goes to age to age. I've got it now. Yeah. And so life that is without limits, life that is ageless, is now being enjoyed. Or to say it another way, I know, I know him who is life. Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. I know him. I didn't purchase it in a church offering. I got it. I know. And it says that as plain as the nose on your face. John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life. Okay, what is it? He said, this is it. That they may know you, the Father, the only true God. And know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's got nothing to do with living forever. That's P.S. you will. But it's got nothing to do with it. 
You have eternal life means I know the Father. I know Jesus Christ. I've personally observed. I've personally responded. I know the Father. I know him through Jesus. That's what he came to give me. Know him. And so they came. And they saw. I don't know how their their eyes were opened in that one first day. But it was the beginning of the, the whole journey of knowing Jesus. And through Jesus the Father began that day. And they said, we, we, we know him. We saw where he abode, where his dwelling was. And it wasn't in the sleeping bag by the fire. He dwelled in the Father. We, that day we saw him. We got it. And it would take all of the Gospel of John to keep on answering that question. Where do you dwell? And um, well, that was my introduction. I... I knew I knew we wouldn't get through this, so um, we'll pick this up next week. But that's who you are, and I, and I hope that throws a little bit of light on why I get so upset about people going to heaven when they die. It's um, infinitely beyond that. Father, thank you for in you we live. We move, we have our being. We are. We are your bride, Lord Jesus. We are sons of the Father. And we dwell in holiness by your grace. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Open us, open the eyes of our understanding that we may see with a holy wow at the magnificence of your purpose. Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.